morning. The scripture reading this morning is from John 20, verses 30 and 31, found on page 1078 in your pew Bibles. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Dear Lord, just thank you that you require nothing more of us than to believe in your name that your word says that if we confess with our lips that you are God and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. And what a gift that is, Lord, that there's nothing that we need to do or can do, but only need to believe, and that you have covered our sins through your Son, through your life on earth, through carrying our sins to the cross, through your death and resurrection, that we have the gift of eternal life. And so I just pray that that would be an encouragement to us, whatever we may face today or looking ahead to this week, whatever hurdles or struggles, that we may have the hope of eternal life that that so far outweighs anything we can face on this earth. And really that uh, just can give us an encouragement. And so I pray that um, we would have our minds and our hearts set on you this morning, that um, we may glorify your name through our worship of you. So in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We'll all probably, there we go, we'll all probably keep making comments about that for until next weekend. I see it's going to be cold. Um, my first experience, oh wait, I have a quick announcement. Uh, one last reminder, uh, if you're going to pack a Operation Christmas Child shoebox, uh, there's some supplies in the back. Uh, you can bring that with you and you need to bring that with you next Sunday so we can collect those and send those off. So that is the last announcement. Um, I was going to say, my first experience with a true New Englander came in 2017, February 5th, 2017, to be exact. Does anybody remember that day? Well, it was, I'm sure you do remember, it was Super Bowl 51. The Patriots versus the Atlanta Falcons. So a friend of mine that I work with, his name is Mike. He was from Boston. He wanted to watch the Super Bowl. His wife had just passed away. And so I said, come over to our house, watch the game. That Super Bowl did not start off well for the Patriots. If you remember, Tom Brady was still the quarterback. Matt Ryan was the quarterback of the Falcons. Luke Bryan sang the national anthem. Lady Gaga sang and performed during the halftime show. I'm sure you all remember that part. But with eight minutes and 31 seconds left in the third quarter, the Patriots were losing badly. My friend Mike was very 
very mad. He had given up on the entire game and he said, I'm going home. I shared some things about that game. The date, the quarterbacks, the musicians, some scores. Does the final score really matter? Because what happened? The Patriots came back to win. The outcome is what matters. Before finishing, Mike stopped watching the game because he was mad. Maybe others in this room even stopped watching because they were upset about what was taking place and discouraged. But one phrase summarizes it all, 28 to three. <laughs> Churches will frequently start a series in the book of a Bible with an overview sermon of the entire book. Most books set the stage at the very beginning of their writing. So Matthew does that, Mark does that, Luke does that. Like Super Bowl 51, the best summary, though, is at the end when we consider the book of John. John saves his overview and his purpose statement for the very end of his gospel. Like Mike, most don't approach reading a book to get to the end. They give up midway through. Maybe there was something difficult to understand or something hard to apply. But for Patriots fans... For fans of the Gospel of John, it brings much joy when we make it to the end, when we've accomplished what the purpose of the book is for, and they've seen where they've been to get to the outcome. So it wasn't just another Super Bowl for Tom Brady. Super Bowl 51 was one of the greatest comebacks in sports history. All the parts of that game make that the greatest comeback. And so I think too with John, he's getting to the end. All the parts that we've seen throughout this gospel make this a great book of the Bible. And I think we will see that even more this morning. So let me read again our passage. I've read it probably dozens of times throughout our whole series in the gospel of John. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So after today, we have two more Sundays in the Gospel of John. But today, John wants us to know three things. He wants us to know what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, and why it matters. Would you pray with me? Father, your disciple Peter said in John 6, Where else shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And we acknowledge that this morning. We acknowledge that you are the source of that, God, that you are the foundation, the solid rock that we put our faith upon in the work of your Son, in the identity of your Son, and it provides us eternal life when we believe that. And so, God, would you help us to believe that? Would you help us to be reminded of that? Would you be honored in our time this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. 
And so since John ordered his book in this way, and he even said this verse in chapter 20, verse 30, that he starts with the works of Jesus, we will start there. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. And so we know that John left some signs out in his gospel. We know from other gospel accounts that Jesus has done more than just these seven signs. But we're going to look at those seven signs and we're going to build a case. We're going to see what God wants us to see in this gospel. If you remember, the first sign was Jesus turning water to wine. And this, remember, we see that Jesus fulfills the old covenant, that there will be an abundance of blessing in the new covenant, signified in the abundance of really good wine that was at this wedding. John 2 is a small sampling of what we will see in the greater view of this gospel. The best is yet to come. It's like the first drive of the game, showing maybe some signs of promise for the eventual victor of the Super Bowl. Second, in John chapter 4, Jesus is with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. He's talking to her about idolatry. She's blind, though, to who Jesus is, standing right in front of her. And his second sign comes right after this. He heals the Roman official's son. In the midst of the healing, he says this. This son, this boy was almost to death. And in John 4, verse 48, he says to this woman at the well, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Again, this idea that we see in John 20, signs and belief. Though we will all eventually die, this boy too was spared from death. He will eventually die. He's not walking around on the earth today. We get an example of what Jesus will do later in this gospel, saving those who believe from eternal death. Third, Jesus heals a man that has been paralyzed for a significant portion his whole life by a pool. His works begin to be aligned with his identity and who he is. What he does connects with who he is. And so therefore, in John 5, 18, he says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So who Jesus is and what he does start to connect and the intensity of the hatred by the Jews starts to increase, which we know will eventually lead with his death on the cross. The fourth sign was the feeding of the, the 5,000. So many were following Jesus. They wanted to hear his teaching. They liked what he was doing. And one day they were following him and they were hungry. And so uh, he gets five loaves and two fish and he feeds 5,000 men, upwards of 20,000 people. And what this does is it alludes to the Exodus where God provided what Israel needed, the manna in the wilderness, and he provides sustenance for his people. He can provide food, but most importantly, he provides the bread of eternal life. Fifth, right after that scene, the disciples leave the shore. They go across the sea and a storm rages. And who meets them on the sea? Jesus walks on water and he meets them uh, on 
the water. Where the feeding of the 5,000, it points to the identity of Yahweh providing for His people, this covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God of the Old Testament. And here in John 6, when Jesus is walking on the water, He uses for the first time a word, a phrase, the I am, referring to himself. Where this eternal covenant-keeping name of God from the Old Testament, Yahweh, is now said of Jesus, connecting that Jesus is Yahweh. Or he did many other signs, and so you may have life in a name. Six, Jesus gives sight to a blind man in John chapter 9. It's starting to become more and more clear that he is the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who can actually pay for the price of our sins, for on, his, uh, sorry, on the cross for sinners like you and me. Being blind to sin, this man born blind now becomes able to see, a model of sight for disciples like you and I to follow, to see Jesus for who he is. And seventh and finally, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. We're rebound by sin. We're on a path of destruction. We are on a path of condemnation. We are in darkness like Lazarus in a tomb, and we too need resurrection. The seventh sign is to be a link to what will come for us in our resurrection. But first, it's to provide a link to Jesus' resurrection so that we might believe. And so these seven facts are, or these seven signs are facts, like facts that I shared about Super Bowl 51. We talked about details of the game. John talked about Jesus and the things that he did in his life. But there's an eighth sign that many scholars like to include in this gospel that gives meaning to everything else in the entire gospel that John wants us to know as of first importance. For what Jesus has done and who he is matters. The eighth sign is Jesus' resurrection. Counting all of this, or connecting all of this together, and cementing all that he has done with who he is. So we covered chapter 20 on Easter. But here is a brief survey. Jesus is buried in John 19. We saw that last week. The tomb is discovered in that first section in John 20 by Mary Magdalene and then Peter and John. They eventually join her at the discovery where it was utter foolishness for the Jews and Pilate. And we've seen that to crucify the king of the universe, to then bury him, the son of God, the Messiah. And Mary and the disciples, they don't know what's going on. And they too look foolish, asking questions that just don't make sense, that we as readers can see, oh, we know what's going on. But God delights to honor and deem that which is foolish with wisdom so that we would boast only in him and him alone. And so when we arrive at the tomb, it's clear that Jesus isn't there, that he has risen from the dead, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, who predicted his own death and his own resurrection has made it happen. Where Peter and John, eventually they leave the scene and the tomb shifts to being in the control of men and a woman to being part of God's mystery as an angel appears. And then Jesus appears shortly thereafter in verse 14. And when he is revealed to Mary, she rejoices. Look at verse 16. What does she call him? 
She calls him Rabboni, which means rabbi or teacher. She doesn't call him Christ. She doesn't call him Son of God. She doesn't even call him Jesus. The name is different, yet not wrong. But Jesus corrects her in verse 20. Look with me. He says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But I go to my brothers and say to them, or but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so Mary now recognizes Jesus as Lord and Christ, that he will soon ascend to the Father, to the Father's right hand in heaven. And what he does, we see even more, is tied to who he is. His mission is tied to his identity. Having risen, it should leave no doubt that Jesus will accomplish all that he said he would do. Where the disciples are scared, but Jesus appears to them and he declares to them peace. Peace with God combined with his words from the cross, it is finished, brings about this reconciliation and a life that God meant us to live as a gift. That's what we truly need. We don't need bread from heaven. We need Jesus himself. The man before them is none other than the risen Lord who was crucified three days prior, the Son of God, the Messiah. And one disciple wasn't there. You see that in the next section. It was Thomas. He had a leg legitimate reason to have his doubts. He wasn't there when Jesus appeared to him. And Thomas lists a bunch of things that he wants to see before he can really validate that the resurrection had happened in verse 25. Thomas says, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And after a whole week, Jesus comes and he meets him and he gives him everything he asked for. Jesus removes all grounds of Thomas's unbelief because what Jesus does connects to who he is. And that's why it matters. Thomas' response is, my Lord and my God, another declaration of Jesus' identity. My Lord, the Greek term that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for Yahweh, the I Am. And Jesus' response to Thomas says, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. So John wrote this gospel for those who have believed yet have not seen. Everyone other than the eyewitnesses of these accounts, including you and I in this room today, this gospel was written for us. John wrote this gospel for us to know what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, and why it matters. And these signs point to what Jesus came to do, to live a sinless life, to die a substitutionary death, to resurrect from the dead, to give us a life we were originally created to live, a life in his name. Now, Jesus did many other signs, but his resurrection is what's most important. John records seven of these signs on purpose, but John connects his mission to Jesus' identity as well. The Christ, the Son of God, as you see in our passage this morning. There's another name that Jesus purposefully uses in this gospel to convey his identity, and he uses it seven times. 
He's the I am. And so we'll go through these seven statements to connect who Jesus is with what he has done. The first time Jesus used it was after the feeding of the 5,000, after he walked on the water. He was with his disciples on the shore, and he says, I am the bread of life. And not only does his work provide sustenance for his people, but he provides the sustenance that we need. They need more than food. They need more than salvation from the storm that is before them. They need him. And so do we. The second I am statement that Jesus uses is in verse or in chapter eight. After he participates in the festival of tabernacles, a festival of light and water, that living water that we sung about in the second song this morning, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The name connects to the next scene where Jesus gives that man the ability to see light for the first time in his life. And I think this is where John 1 helps to shed some light on this for us, where John 1, verse 4 and 5 says, In him, speaking of Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Where the light shines to show our need for a Savior. The third time Jesus uses the I am, he says he is the door in John chapter 10, verse 7 and 9. It's the way to enter into the Father's kingdom. And closely thereafter, Jesus gives a fourth statement of his identity in verse 14 and 15 of John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And so now his identity starts to correlate with his mission. Do you see it? John wants to remember what Jesus has done. He wants us to remember who he is, and he wants us to know why it matters. Where Jesus provides for us, he gives sight, he makes a way for us, he leads his people. But on top of that, he's starting to show that the, to his disciples, that his work for us is going to come out in an unexpected way as a substitutionary sacrifice for his people. His fifth statement comes right after he, or right before, he raises Lazarus from the dead. In John 11, Jesus said to Martha in her doubts about Jesus' ability to do anything about the situation that her dead brother has been in, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Where his substitution is now pointing to the opposite of death, which is life. You see that in verse 31. This all matters, that he has written this, that you may have life in his name. Before we look at the last two, I think John 5, 19 is a good reminder at this point. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. The father and the son, are they're equal in existence, but they're also equal in purpose. Jesus' sixth statement comes in John 14, 6. You probably know this one. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Where salvation is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is the only way to go to the Father. 
And seventh and final in chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. He's our sustenance. He's our source of fruit in our lives where we cannot bear fruit apart from him. It's a vital connection. It's a union that you and I have with the God of the universe where we abide in him. We abide in his gospel where we have life in his name. I think Peter's famous statement ties all of this together in the Gospel of John. Knowing what Jesus has done, he helps us understand who Jesus is, but also the opposite is true. Knowing who Jesus is helps us to understand what he has done. Where life can get hard for disciples, for you and I, but as life got hard for the disciples in John chapter 6, as opposed to leaving Jesus, Peter says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so there are many other signs that Jesus did that are not recorded in this gospel. There are many other names of Jesus that are not recorded in this gospel. There are names that are recorded, like the Word made flesh, the Son of God, the Lord, a friend who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus wants to know, want, sorry, John wants us to know in this gospel what Jesus has done, who he is, and why it matters. And so why does it matter? John says in verse 31, that we may believe and have life in his name. John doesn't just record facts. Seven signs and seven I am statements are widely known. You probably knew most of them, if not all of them. But facts about Jesus are what leads to what truly matters. Who cares about how many rings Tom Brady has? What matters most is what you believe about Jesus. A.W. Tozer says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I pray and I encourage you to consider the facts. It matters because when we believe in Jesus, it provides for us eternal life. His signs prove who he is. His identity shows us who he is. And God, or as God rose himself from the dead, the resurrection validates everything he has said and done. Jesus says in John 20 verse, I'm sorry, John 10 verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And while in chapter 20, he says, you have found life in his name. You see the connections between the Son and the Father. By believing, we receive eternal life, this new quality of life, a life we were meant to live. It's a life to know God, as Jesus says in John 17. And this life provided by God through His Son allows us to live a life God created us for, a life to worship God. And I think there's seven ways I think John would encourage us to worship God in this book. Some takeaways for you this morning. First, we worship in proclaiming who God is and what He has done. We do that in songs, primarily here on Sunday. We do that as we open up God's Word here on Sunday. This morning, we will sing songs that tie well to the themes that we've seen throughout this gospel. You might have picked up on that in the first three. We're going to sing three more. We're going to add one more in response to who Jesus is and what He's done. We worship God for the eternal life that He provides us. Second, 
We worship by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Eric mentioned that in his call to worship this morning. We do that the first Sunday of each month. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's eternal, fully God, fully man, taking on flesh, not created, eternally existed, and He has lived in perfect community with Father and Spirit. He's the perfect and only substitute that we have as payment to atone for our sins that we saw last week in John 19. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's why we celebrate communion, remembering His body given for us, His blood shed for us. Third, we worship because God has called us out of darkness. Jesus saves sinners through the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't save everyone. He saves those who believe in Him, in His name, in His identity, what He's done as God and Messiah. Fourth, we worship Jesus by loving Him alone. If you recall, back in John chapter 4, idol worship was the discussion. In John chapter 12, there was some more idol worship where Mary came to anoint Jesus' feet and who chimed in and said it was a waste of money? It was Judas. But to love God in this life, I'm sorry, but to love this life means we ultimately deny God's sovereignty and we elevate ourselves above God. A practical way we worship in this is giving of our tithes and offerings. If you're part of the family, you know how to do that online or in the back. Fifth, we worship by proclaiming who Jesus is in our words throughout all of our life. In John 18, we saw the back and forth contrast with Peter and Jesus, where Peter is three times shown to deny who Jesus is and what he's done, that he even knew him. But in John 18, we see Jesus communicate clearly who he is and what he's done and why he came to do it. And Jesus is condemned to death because of it, for affirming his mission, for affirming what he came to do, for affirming who he is. And that's why it matters. We worship by not being ashamed of who God is and what he's done, but we boldly proclaim it to each other and to the world around us who our God is. Six, we worship Jesus humbly. He was counted guilty, though innocent, so that the guilty, you and I, might be counted innocent for who, those who believe. We've seen themes of election and God calling his people to himself, but it should never, ever make us arrogant. We should be the most humble people who walk this earth because we have done nothing to cause God to do so much for us. It's okay to allow the posture of your body as we sing songs to reflect the posture of your heart. If you want to raise your hands and praise God for who He is, do it. If you want to get on your knees and humbly sit there in a posture of humility because of what God has done for you, do it. I would encourage you to do that. Let the, body, the posture of your body reflect the posture of your heart. John wants us to know in this gospel what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, and why it matters. Where Jesus, the God-man, he lived a sinless life here on earth. He lived a life that we were meant to live, yet without sin. And God sent forth his Son to punish Jesus on our behalf, to have, just, to have a just punishment for sin. Where Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the innocent in place of the guilty. 
Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist proclaimed in chapter 1, securing our eternal life, a life that begins now to know God. As a lamb, he's also the good shepherd. Seventh, we worship him because he secures us to the end. Our good shepherd calls us, and those whom he chooses hear him, listen to him, follow him, and believe. And the tension is of our response and God's role in our salvation is seen and displayed in John 10, verse 27 and 28. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you remember, after Jesus' time walking with the disciples, he's in this upper room and he initiates this new covenant. And you can tell that the tension inside their souls is escalating. And John records this in John 14, verse 1. Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And this gospel has shown us that we are adopted into God's family. We are given his spirit to comfort us. And we can rest in God's promises, secured by his name, Yahweh, the I am, the God who keeps his promises. When he says he will save his people from their sins, friends, he will. And you can rest in that. Where John desires to rehearse these major themes throughout this gospel with this statement that we've seen in chapter 20. As we've looked at this morning, John wants us to know in this gospel who Jesus is, what he has done, and why it matters. And it matters because we were created to worship. We were created to worship God, the only true object worthy of our worship and praise. It matters because in believing in Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sins. We we can be counted as sons and daughters of God. We can have eternal life in His name. Maybe belief in eternal life starts today. Maybe it started over the last couple years for you. Maybe it started decades ago for you. But John is an evangelist. He's sharing the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And John is convinced that what Jesus has done is important and it changes everything. He's convinced that who Jesus is is important as well, and it changes everything. Are you convinced? This work of John has reached its powerful conclusion. The evangelist has achieved his desired goal in presenting a captivating picture of a divine word become flesh so that humanity can behold the glory of God, the Father, and His only Son. D.A. Carson in his commentary suggests this. Even if John's purpose is primarily evangelistic, it must be admitted that throughout the history of the church, this gospel has served not only as a means for reaching unbelievers, but as a means for instructing, edifying, and comforting believers. Like the disciples in this gospel, we doubt and we fear, we deny and we sin, we wander, we question Jesus, and we, we need reminders of the gospel too. And so Cornerstone, consider God's grace in your life as much as you would consider sharing this gospel with non-believers who you run across with. Let it lead you and I both to lives of repentance frequently, but let us also lead us to worship. When we stumble, when we fall, we trust God again. 
He hasn't let you go. He never will let you go. And he loves us even still. But nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus. And nothing will snatch us out of his hand. And in receiving life in Jesus' name, fools are turned to wise. The blind are turned to perceptive. The fearful are turned to confident. Idol worshipers are turned to worshipers of God. And in the book, Gentle and Lowly, which many of you have been given, many of you have read. If you haven't, we have lots of copies. I'd love to give you a copy of it. Dane Ortland records these words, applying what John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, this is his famous work, on John 6.37, as an encouragement, I believe, for you, Christian, as we start to close our time in the Gospel of John. Maybe you've thought or said words like this, but here's what John Bunyan would say in response to an allegory of Jesus' words to you. But I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. Well, I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I've served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I've sinned against light, say you. But I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. So Ortland, he summarizes this. He says, fallen anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. Maybe you've considered some. We're factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as a specific sin or failure, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. But Bunyan understands us. He knows we tend to deflect Christ's assurance, and he says this. No, wait. We say cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of way. And Jesus' response, I know. You know most of it, sure. Certainly more than others see. But there's perversity down inside me that is hidden from everyone. And Jesus' response, I know it all. Well, the thing is, it's just not my past, it's my present, too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of any of this anytime soon. It's the only person I'm here to help. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're against you. Then I'm the most suited person to forgive you. But the more of ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Where else shall we go? 
because he has the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that he is the Holy One of God. What Jesus has done, who Jesus is, church matters. The resurrection changes everything. It validates all he has done. It proves who he is. It makes all true. We aren't just to move on. Another Patriots win. Come next year, sit back and relax. We are to worship. We can sit back and we can relish at the end of this gospel of what has taken place and we can take a deep breath and just say, thank you. And let our hearts jump for joy. Our Lord and our God is risen. Friends, the, the grave is empty. Let us rejoice. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice in the utter genius of how you directed your disciple John to write this gospel. God, we thank you that he wrote it in this way so that we might believe that we might have eternal life because our Lord and God, your Son, is risen, that the grave is empty, that we receive eternal life by believing it. You are so good. You are so merciful. You are so loving. And let us give you the worship and praise that you deserve today and forever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.